these two handouts uh, just outside the room. They're not necessary, but um, I'll be referring to them during the talk. Tonight I'm going to talk about the guidance the Buddha gave um, on mindfulness of breathing. And just to stop for one moment and back off that if you're not using breathing on this retreat as your concentration focus, but you're using sounds or an overall sense of your body, and I really want to stop and validate that because we're using mindfulness of breathing as a template for describing how to develop samadhi. But um, it does mean that a lot of you who are not using the breath um, have to do a lot of translation. So when I'm talking tonight about mindfulness of breathing or as we keep talking about mindfulness of breathing, some of the details in that, um, there's sort of a bow to the the cognitive effort that people have to put in to keep reinterpreting that from their perspective. And I have gone through my own times where mindfulness of breathing was my focus. And then there were times even deeper into my practice when mindfulness of breathing wasn't the best object for me. And being more spacious and listening to sounds or more global sense of my body uh, was actually helpful. So it's not even if you're in that phase where you're not using the breath, you're somehow falling behind and that mindfulness of breathing is the only way to go forward. That said, the Buddha did teach mindfulness of breathing as one of the central ways of developing uh, mindfulness and untangling the knots in the mind. But he also taught many different kinds of meditation. So we have to hold that with a gentle wisdom as we keep referring back to mindfulness of breathing. So there is a work of translation for those of you that are not using mindfulness of breathing. And we'll help you with that in the one-on-one meetings or in uh, questions that come up in the hall. So the Buddha once described mindfulness of breathing in a way to show how immediately relieving it could be. And that's an instruction to us. How could we breathe in a way and or be simply present in a way that's relieving? 
that doesn't drive our mind continually from one reactivity to another, and then a dislike pushes us this way, and a like pushes that way. And then stomping on it also is stressful and saying, no, don't do that. And so we learn these ways to de-escalate ourselves if we're feeling revved up, revved up in an unproductive way. What's the right way to settle down something that's been stirred up? And it's not through just willpower or, again, crushing something with your mental ferocity. There is patience and gentleness. And we learn how not to agitate ourselves while we're trying to actually uh, calm our system down. So the Buddha described it um, in a way that makes sense if you've been in a country like uh, India at his time, and there are many countries that are a little closer to the equator, where any dry season combined with a hot season is an incredible experience to be in for months at a time. So I experienced this in Burma and a little bit in India. But uh, as it heats up before that heat causes the monsoons to come, there can be months and months where it just feels like you're in a sauna and every day is a little hotter. And the amount you have to drink and just you drink here and it almost instantly oozes out of your body. Um, Anyways, the heat is incredible. And then because there's a lack of water, whenever people ride on the road or do any type of work um, on the land, the land just breaks apart into dust. So it's a very dusty time, uh, hot and dusty. And if you were in India at the time, you would know that at the end of the hot season, it is hot and dusty, and people are really praying for the first rain. And when the first rain comes through, it settles all the dust out of the air, cools people off, and it's the beginning of a renewal time to have the rain come, and then farmers can farm, and uh, there's a great relief of suffering. And he compared to mindfulness of breathing, could be like that first rain after a long, hot season. So the actual quote is, Just as in the last month of the hot season, when a mass of dust and dirt has swirled up, a great rain cloud out of the season disperses it and quells it on the spot. A great rain cloud out of season. So you're not expecting it. It's hot. There's no hope. And then the first rain that comes is always a a bit of a shock because it comes as a monsoon. It doesn't come with mist. It actually starts raining heavily when it starts. And so it immediately quells it on the spot. So too, samadhi or concentration by mindfulness of breathing when developed and cultivated is peaceful and sublime. An ambrosial, pleasant dwelling. And it disperses and quells on the spot unwholesome states whenever they arise. When I worked in the second monastery that I lived in when I lived in Burma, there was a great teacher named Paok Sayadaw. And he was uh, 
He always had a joyful twinkle in his eye, which was nice to come in anytime I saw him. And he never tired of talking about something as simple as mindfulness of breathing. And every day he was freshly excited to support people in getting this medicine of mindfulness of breathing. But I had sort of like uh, an ambitious goal in a little bit. I thought I was being relaxed by my standards but I was still pushing, 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 and couldn't tell why I wasn't getting the taste of medicine. And my practice didn't feel like a sudden rain cloud in the middle of the hot season. It felt like the hot season to be present in my mind at the time. And so one time I came in and he tried so many ways to convey this to me. And one time he said, I would like your practice to be like this. And I looked very closely and he went, oh. and he sort of like beamed. And I was like, wow, I just do not get what he's talking about. <laughs> I also want it to be like that. But I am trying, I am trying, my frustrating mind just keeps thinking of something else and I push it back, I beg for it to come back, I manipulate it back, I patiently don't want it to, but then force it back. I'm doing everything I know how to do, but I do not have this experience. But it was interesting that he framed it that way, and he was a great uh, meditation practitioner, and he's one of the foremost Burmese teachers these days, and really reviving this practice of a deep relief to the mind through samatha practices to cultivate samadhi. I talked to uh, a nun in his community who was also, uh, she was quite humble, but people knew her as a, a kind of a jhana uh, master at a young age and sort of a concentration savant in that it came very easily to her. Not so easily she didn't understand and need a growing process, but once it uh, opened for her, she had very strong capacities for samadhi. And I came to her and she asked about my practice and I said, I am, the moment I wake up, I am on my breath and I am on my breath all day long and I've been doing this for a long time. And I'm still struggling. And she said, I, I don't really work hard to focus my mind until I have a sense of contentment. And so you might try that. And that had never occurred to me. <laughs> that contentment for me was the payoff of having worked hard, but I never thought contentment could actually be a way as Nikki talked about the five jhana factors last night, it is true that the vitaka vichara, the aiming and sustaining of attention, or the, the connecting and sustaining, there does seem to be more choice in that, so it feels closer to something you can do. And the way that the other jhana factors ripen, the sukha and the PT and the ekagata, they do seem to ripen, so there's not, not a lot of doing for PT or doing for sukha. 
But without knowing it, I was practicing in a way that I was actually making it difficult for sukha to arise without knowing it. I was uh, working hard and it was a little fatiguing, so I had to work hard to overcome the fatigue that I was developing by working so hard. And then I had to fight off the doubt because I was working really hard but not getting much uh, result. And then the amount of frustration. So I was cultivating what I thought was mindfulness of breathing, but it was a lot of hindrances in the way I was practicing. So one thing to communicate tonight is that there's sort of an atmosphere around samadhi where you can use the breath or you can use loving kindness. These are the objects of attention. But what I learned at that second monastery is having more sort of a global sense of ease, a more global sense of patience. And I'd never kind of looked at the sort of, am I approaching this practice in a way that could bring about ease or could welcome ease. I was doing ease without seeing that that mind that was doing ease would never know ease. It was just one more thing I was trying to do and I kept getting more and more tricks to do. And the concentration that came, came when I learned to actually more globally relax which is why we, we're emphasizing it so strongly here, is this global sense of patience, this global sense of ease. And what you might notice in the foreground of your mind or maybe in the background is like, what could occur if you were that easeful? Because it's the doing that produces something. So how could ease that's always like the sort of the lazy direction to be easeful. So we have a cultural bias towards conscious ease. So most of us only know ease when we actually are unconscious and sleeping. As soon as we wake up, a doing fever comes over us. And then we try our best to be relaxed around mindfulness of breathing, yet there's still an unconscious mistrust of it. So then we try to do the practice and then get kind of disheartened when the doing doesn't actually produce anything. Strangely enough, I would work hard, feel defeated, give up, not quite ready to go home, some failure, but there I would stop trying so hard because I was not getting much fruition. And then they're not trying so hard. It's like, well, I'm slow, but it is kind of nice to breathe. <laughs> and just breathing. Now I'll never get to my ambitions, and I really can't figure this out. But, oh, that is nice to breathe in and out. That's nice. You know, I think I'm going to do this. I'm going to fail at Buddhism but I'm just going to breathe peacefully and appreciate it. And God, it's sort of... <sighs> and then my mind was like, oh, wait, that's what the teacher said. You're actually on to something. And I would pounce. It's like, make up for lost time. You got it. You can still get ahead. <laughs> so I had to defeat that over and over and over, this pouncing 
looking for development. And then the concentration began to sort of show me itself that when I would relax and just let a breath be a breath and be humble about that, there would be this resting of my heart, mind, and body. They would start to collect because they weren't so agitated. And that's actually the balanced state where you have cooling factors, warming factors, they come together and you have this nice blend between relaxation but not kind of sloppy, uh, being adrift and cloudiness. But there's not the effort that is bound and connected to tension. And so then it began to make sense. Oh, it is kind of like I'm caught up in something, even in good things, but I'm caught up in them. And I could let mindfulness of breathing be like the first rain that breaks the hot season and the dusty season. So um, I have these uh, two handouts. And if you don't have them, don't worry about it. They're supposed to be printed on the backside of each other to make it really simple. But then it turned into two of them. And that's more complicated than if they were on one page. So there's a, that's how it is tonight. But on one side, there's the Anapanasati and the simple instructions. And this is what the Buddha taught. And he probably taught it skillfully to those practitioners that needed it in a simple version, not because they weren't clever, but it was good for their temperament to actually keep it really simple. So the simple instructions are mindfully breathing in, mindfully breathing out, just letting a breath come in, just letting a breath go out. Just enough mindfulness to know, yeah, this is in-breathing. This is out-breathing. And the second instruction is breathing in and letting go. Breathing out and letting go. And in that, you encapsulate the two parts of practice, which is the showing up, but not making tension and further agitation about how you show up but not letting go and then letting go into fogginess. So how do we show up, but then show up with spaciousness, with caring, with capacity? And so herein, the breath can be how we do that, as can other ways that we concentrate. Awareness of the body in a relaxed way, awareness in space and sound, anything that brings ease, So in that simple instruction, it's nice because it doesn't get too complicated. You can't uh, overly complicate it. The only challenge is when you keep it simple, it gets so familiar that there can be a little, um, you're not, you're kind of hovering in the practice. It's like, yeah, I'm breathing. It's probably an (laughs) in-breath. Oh, I got that relaxation they were talking about. Oh yeah, I'm on a retreat. That's right. Oh yeah, I was. I am breathing in, but you can kind of go a little foggy. And so, the Buddha gave mindfulness of breathing instructions that are in detail. And this is also uh, 
for some people at some times, having a little bit more of a nuance about how to develop and cultivate mindfulness breathing. And the only thing about this is that when, whenever there's this much detail and this much structure, we can consciously or unconsciously get tied up in it. So this is, you're relaxed, you're on a, a raft floating down the stream, beautiful trees overhead, dragonflies going by, and then you start to space out a little bit. It's like, this is too beautiful to space out on. I'm going to actually, in this relaxed state, appreciate trees and now spider webs. I'm not stressing, I am appreciating levels of uh, intimacy, but it's not to make it, if you don't count it, all the leaves you failed floating down the river, but just so you don't space out. So you can then go into this detail. And if you can approach it in a kind, patient way, there's some wisdom into this much detail. We're going to go through the, the list of the Buddha's instructions. It's a little bit more detailed. And many of you will say, do you have to do it in this linear fashion? And the question is no, especially if you use the word have to. This is an invitation. Uh, it's interesting. There is some wisdom in the linear progression, but there's also knowing these pieces and using them intuitively. So if you were playing a stringed instrument, you might tune it in a certain way and warm up your fingers in a certain way. But that's not the music. The music is once you feel oriented to the guitar or whatever, then you play it. And so these, this list can be used in a linear fashion. There's a little bit of wisdom to that, maybe more than a little bit. But don't make a, a, a suffering or a tightness around this list. And so that's as, uh, we'll remind you about that. If you're getting caught in it as a net or packing tape that just keeps sticking to itself, and every time you <laughs> approach this list, go back to the first one. This is totally fine, the simple version. But if you want to come into the detailed version, there are actually 16 detailed steps to mindfulness of breathing but it's the first 12 that lead to samadhi. And so I'm just gonna go through these 12 to show how you might practice with a gentle, patient sense of cultivating samadhi and some skillful things that are helpful in cultivating samadhi. When the Buddha gave this instruction, he made it uh, it's interesting because he repeats every instruction twice, once on an in-breath and once on an out-breath. So there are 16 steps, but each one is doubled because you practice it when breathing in, you practice it when breathing out. It's also interesting that breathing is through every one of these steps. While breathing in, notice this. While breathing out, notice that. And so the breath stays as a, a basis to do this work of cultivating samadhi. The breath is not a starter place and then you graduate to something else. You actually use the breath to support uh, these steps of developing samadhi. 
So while breathing in, do a step. While breathing out, do the same step. The first thing, the first two steps, actually, if you look at the, the grouping, there are 16 steps. They're broken into four groups each. And each group is called a tetrad, which means a grouping of four or a one-fourth of. So there's a first tetrad, second tetrad. There are four steps in each of these four tetrads, which is, if you like math, that's very balanced. And then they're paired within the tetrad. So the first tetrad is about the breath and the body. And the first two go together while breathing in. No, Become aware of, know the experience of longer breaths. While breathing out, know the experience of longer breaths. While breathing in, know the experience of shorter breaths. While breathing out, know the experience of shorter breaths. There actually are many different ways to approach this. So not to confuse you with many ways to do this. But if you just sort of say, this is an in-breath, this is an out-breath, that can get a little bit redundant. And then the mind gets a little soporific, a little sleepy, and just saying in, out, in, out. You could overdo it, which is what I did for a long time, is I tried to create a scheme of how I would measure breaths. And I tried heartbeats to see if I could measure how long or short my breaths were, but how many heartbeats happened. It was so stressful to try to say, every breath is unique. I'm going to see the uniqueness of every breath. I had to create a whole internal thing that kept track of breaths. So I had a place to measure them from. I do not recommend that. <laughs> but when you get to know the breath, one thing that becomes apparent over time is that your body is always doing this background, beautiful dance of metabolism. And every now and then, it just won't, needs to take a deeper breath. And then every now and then, there's a longer pause. Then every now and then, it's quite happy taking shallower breaths. But you probably won't see this every single breath, how it stands out. That's an overuse of these two steps. But coming in, just to say, the breath, is not ident the breath is not identical. I'm going to freshly appreciate a breath at a time. And then every now and then, just say, yeah, these are sort of medium breaths. And then you might notice, oh, I just noticed I took a longer breath. And that just might help keep some interest in breathing that it's not uh, identical and therefore something to get bored of. How do you freshly appreciate breaths and become aware that breathing is a dynamic process? That's sort of a generally agreed upon common way to think about these first two steps. Some people know the benefit of taking longer breaths. It's sort of a pranayama, so you might intentionally start with some longer breaths, then relax into a natural breath. And some people have found that a slightly shorter breath has a different quality to it. But mostly we think let the breath be natural and then notice that the body is not a machine that produces identical breaths all the time. It's a response to the needs of the body, how much it breathes. And then you're having a living relationship with your body by appreciating one breath at a time and the freshness and the uniqueness of each breath.
when you're feeling your breath in your body, there are some suggestions that I, it's a little bit like um, shooting an arrow or throwing darts, where they say to put the place in front of your nose as like the little red dot of the uh, dartboard. But imagine if you, there, you played a game of darts and all there was was the little red dot. Most people would be missing, but it'd be very clear if you hit the red dot or not. You got the red dot or didn't. Is this making sense? Do you guys know darts enough for this reference? But you aim for the center, but sometimes it goes off by a little, but you at least hit the board. So when I was given this uh, instruction to feel the breath not inside my nose, but actually as it crossed my lip, and then to appreciate breathing in front of my nose, that specificity ended up being a little bit too, too narrow for my mind at the time. So then I tried to grit my teeth and just watch breathing on my lip. So then I combined it with this global sense of relaxation and then brought my attention a little closer, where of my body, where of my breath. And then sometimes it was really pleasant to feel my breath in such a subtle place. And I could intend a little bit, but when my mind got tired, Trying to be here sometimes would be a little bit too specific, a little bit too narrow of a spot. So then I created this sort of dartboard or archery uh, model. Um, had a lot of time in Burma to <laughs> try to synthesize a lot of information. And I thought, if I'm shooting the arrow, I aim for the middle, but if I just hit the target, that's fantastic. So today, or this year, then today, then now, then this body inside the body and then feeling the breath crossing a very gentle place in front of my nose. And then I would aim for that. But if I hit today, that's great. <laughs> I aim for the spot under my nose, but my mind wandered to some part today. And I said, that's a hit because I'm at least thinking about today. Does that make sense? So I was like, yeah, this is great. I have kind of a, a, a nice location, but a very tolerant approach, very patient approach. And then sometimes this would be natural to feel just this little uh, silky experience of breath crossing over my lip. And sometimes I needed a slightly bigger target to stabilize my attention. But I never, it was never helpful to be forcing my mind here and fighting other places my attention was drawn that always backfired. So it's a relaxed approach to bring your attention to a subtle place. And it's really helpful not to then try to measure yourself as like, oh, I could do it yesterday, not today, something's wrong. It's like, no, that was yesterday. You could breathe here with a lot of contentment. But today, contentment is in a slightly larger frame. Still putting this spot in the middle, but a much more, I need kind of a more global relaxation slightly larger sense so I can support my attention. And right now, this is a, just a little bit too subtle. And then just be patient with that. So knowing longer breaths, knowing shorter breaths. The next invitation is while breathing in, experience your whole body. And while breathing out, experience your whole body. 
And your whole body is a lot to experience on an in-breath. So again, it's not a kind of, I have to do it in such a short amount of time. It's just putting breath in the middle of your experience. You can widen the aperture out and realize I'm breathing inside of a body. And actually the breath is supporting me in being intimate with my body. And sometimes I'm getting an overall sense of my body. Sometimes I'm actually finding it interesting to feel my body with more loyalty and interest to the sensations that are there. But I'm using the breath to support an experience of my whole body in a relaxed way. The fourth step is calming what are called body sankharas. And sankharas are our driven habitual nature. So as we know the body, we might notice that I'm knowing the body, I'm breathing, but it just feels like there's this old holding pattern. My shoulders are up a little bit. And see, now that I know my body, I'm going to relax it. I'm going to invite relaxation. Let's see what parts of my the activated body I can bring to a little more peace. A few things to outline here is that if you're patient enough to do some of these earlier steps, the next ones come a little bit more easy. So if you're really happy with breaths, the body is an incredible theme park with all these different things, temperatures and sensations. So if breathing is something that you find entertaining. Feeling your body is even more interesting. But if you try to jump past breathing and know your body, chances are you're not in the mind space to actually know your body in detail. Again, if you're not using the breath, you might have to relax into a spacious sense of the room and then come to a sense of your body. So the first two steps are whatever you're using as your concentration practice. And then when you're willing to experience your body without an agenda of fixing it or disliking the painful parts or wishing it were different than it is, experiencing your body and breathing, there's a natural thawing process that happens where your body feels respected by your attention. Your mind relaxes some. And then the calming of your body isn't even something you have to do as much as when you're in right relationship to your body with a mind that is relaxed, then all these imprints we have in the back of our mind or in our conscious mind, all these holding patterns soften, relax, and our bodies open up over time. So if we're willing to uh, stay with breathing, know our bodies, and then ask our bodies, relax, or invite them to relax, it's a gentle, patient process. Notice here that we experience the body before we ask it to relax. So we don't just come in with a standard and uh, make our body perform it. There's a respectful knowing of your body and then inviting your body into ease versus coming in with a shaking finger, you body, you, you relax now. I see your tensions, I see your games. No, experience your body, breathe. And then out of a kindness to your body, invite it to relax, invite it to let go of any imprints of tension. 
That's actually repeated through a lot of mindfulness uh, uh, discourses, is to know something before you try to change it. So as the body relaxes, and these unconscious holding patterns relax and open, there's better circulation. When there's better circulation, you get a lot more subtle body experiences, small pulsing, small tingling. And so going into the second tetrad, you can experience uh, PT, which is another jhana factor that Nikki talked about last night. And I have next to it the English word aliveness versus bliss because PT actually can be uncomfortable. It's not always pleasant, but it's where your body is going from a holding pattern, feeling heavy and inert, and then it starts to feel more dynamic. And sometimes that's very relieving, but sometimes uh, you feel like a shaken soda can. And it's like, oh, there's a lot of energy. It might be that you're experiencing PT, just energy awakening in the body, uh, but you might not, because it's not like bliss, you wouldn't necessarily call it, uh, you wouldn't necessarily call it bliss, but it's actually your body starting to flow where it has been in uh, imposed stasis. And then you might notice your mind also goes into a more relaxed and mobile mode where it's not carrying heavy burdens, but the mind itself feels unburdened and therefore becomes more energetic. And people say that the food tastes better. People say that sights are sometimes a little clearer and lizards are that much more amazing. <laughs> a mind that's amazed by ordinary things, that's this awakening PT that is quite uh, delightful and joyous. It can be. Um, so people often like the PT when it's balanced. Once there's the flow of that energy, of the PT, energy can only flow where there is relaxation. So if you take flowing water and you constrict it, it doesn't flow when the pressure builds. But if you relax and let water flow, that relaxation allows water to flow with less turbulence. And so as the PT energy flows with this, even if it's subtle, you might just feel a little bit more aliveness in your hands. You might feel like your body is more feelable than it was the other days when first couple of days it felt very inert. So you might feel uh, the aliveness in your body. More subtle than that is the factor of sukha, which is another factor of concentration, the jhana factor, is you can look into your body and not look to the painful parts, but look to the parts of your body that are probably pleasantly relaxed but weren't grabbing your attention. You know, one itchy place gets all your attention. And the rest of your body is like, hey, I'm not itching. We're not all itching. There's actually a lot of you that's quite well. Like I know, but like the itch really is grabbing my attention. So in this practice, you actually want to start noticing your own well-being but your own well-being isn't because you have sugar on your tongue or your favorite color at your eye or your best sound at your ear. Like, What is this well-being that I can be in, but I couldn't necessarily tell you why there's well-being? I'm just happy. 
why are you happy? I don't know. I was just happy. So it's another thing that you can begin to breathe in, experiencing your own happiness, your own contentedness, breathing out, experiencing your own happiness, your own contentedness. When I started seeing that these were in the same teachings of the same spiritual practice that talked about everything being suffering, I was like, there's a lot of happiness in this list. You get to feel the aliveness. You get to calm your body. You get to feel this contentment. It's like, oh, interesting. In the realm of developing concentration, in the realm of developing samadhi, this happiness and contentment is actually uh, welcomed. And so when Sister Dipankara said she doesn't focus her mind until she feels background contentment, and I began to explore that, I couldn't make contentment happen, but I saw that I was practicing in a way that contentment was not likely to come. I was sitting with a lot of pain, but I thought that was like heroic. I was not talking to my friends in the monastery because all talking is bad. Friends would go for a walk in the sunset, and I was like, nope, that obviously is attachment to sunsets. <laughs> and I was like, how would I cultivate contentment and it's like, I would probably be a little more nourished by the people around me and not like ignore them, don't be dependent upon them. It's like, no, I'm inspired by these people. I'm actually going to let that live in my heart. I'm inspired by people who are practicing. And it is beautiful out. And beauty is really helping me with this factor of contentment. So even though I couldn't do it, I began to realize I could welcome contentment into more places at more times. And then when you have a little more aliveness in your body, a little bit more of this contentment, this becomes a whole sort of energetic balancing in your heart, mind, and body that it can be alive, but it doesn't have to be agitating. It can be relaxed, but it doesn't have to be sleepy. And then if you mix these, uh, there actually is a noun, piti sukhana in Pali, where you do mix them, and then you get the, the perfect Justin's peanut butter cups. <laughs> right amount of chocolate, right amount of peanut butter. They're so much better than they are by themselves. Piti and suka, when they're really mixed together, it's like they are better then one sukha without the PT can be a little bit uh, opiated, a little bit drowsy. PT without the sukha, it's like, uh, it's alive, but oh God, it's intense. It's like the perfect uh, mocha. You know, it's got the coffee for the awakening, but the hot chocolate for that nice, mmm. all hot chocolate, you go to sleep, all coffee, you get agitated. Ah, oh, PT and sukha. Let me see if I can breathe with these. If you actually learn to cultivate, relaxed, or cultivate your energy body, then when you go to step seven and eight, which are, you start to look, what mental habits are not willing to be with this mocha of happiness? Why am I still remembering old regrets? They're so much easier to let go of if the present moment is a pleasant place. But if the present moment is not a pleasant place, it's all willpower because the mind goes, I can think of much better things to do with our attention 
than to be bored or to be in contact with something where I'm struggling. But you might notice there's still some hooks in your mind that are not giving themselves fully to just breathing and being content and being simple. So step seven, just like in step eight, is you open up and say, is there any part of my mind that's still fixated on something? And you see if you can experience it, breathe in and out, this is what it is, this is the hook, this is the content. And then you can actually slide out of the hook. If you accept it and breathe with it, you can relax your way out of it. But if you hate the fact that your mind still has this thing, that very agitation that your mind is still thinking about something actually doesn't unhook the, the hook. You're still hooked and struggling. So you breathe with something. I still seem to be thinking a lot about my family. I'm breathing with it. Ah, let's relax out of this habit so I can be that much more simple and present. And that's how you calm these mental habits. Much easier to relax your attention into the present moment if you've cultivated the present moment as a fairly benign place to be. Then we get into, uh, well, 99.9 and throw a whole bunch of nines after that of your meditation practice is going to be in the realm of these first two tetrads. Even if you're in a monastery, living in a cave, most of the work we do is still with the breath, still knowing our bodies, relaxing our bodies, opening up a little bit more to the flow of energy in our bodies, and seeing if we can balance that with a sense of contentment. Then working on the parts of the mind that are hooked on old memories, old fears, new fears, plans, uh, activities of mind, learning to give them a chance to relax. When we come out of meditation, then when you engage your mind, it's rested. So these mental, these mental habits are great when they're done by choice as opposed to being compulsive or driven habits. So we want to learn to relax them so that when we step in, the mind is rested and we're doing uh, loving kindness or generosity uh, by choice. So the habits that are best are the ones that can go quiet so that when they come up, it's by, again, choice and inspiration versus some uh, haggard-driven relationship. When we go into the third tetrad, this is an interesting step over because the ninth Instruction is while breathing in, experience the mind, while breathing out, experience the mind. So <clears throat> this is my analogy to myself that holds this information. When your mind is full of a lot of content and it's actually in the mode of thinking and producing, it's actually very hard to taste the mind itself or to know the mind itself because it's so cluttered with content. But as you can relax the content of your mind, you actually can start to be mindful of qualities of the mind. So if you're full of angry content, you might first have to relax all that clutter of the content so you can breathe in and out and feel 
anger. And that's much closer to the state of the heart than all the content we're, we're trapped up in. So by calming the mind, taking your time to calm the mind, what's left over when there's not a lot of clutter is you're accessing the experience of your heart-mind itself. And it has emotional qualities, it has cognitive qualities, this mind is very focused, this mind is easily contented, this mind is agitated, this mind is impatient. So I'm a very, one of my hard habits to calm down is uh, in driving. I don't think I like driving, especially in urban areas, so I often just want to get it over with. And somebody who's driving slower than me prolongs my driving. And I know they're not prolonging my driving. What an egocentric thing to say. But I'm surprised at how much my mind gets into this fixation. And I have to let go of the story, this person should be driving a little quicker by my standards, but that person who's pushing me is going way too fast. I'm always somehow the right speed. <laughs> so I have to kind of relax that. And then I can say, I am knowing the mind that's impatient. So then I can know the mind. And sometimes when there's been a lot of contentment, a lot of ease, knowing the mind is gone kind of quiet. It's peaceful. And it's a subtle thing to know a mind that's not driven by its own torments, its own habits. So breathing in, breathing out, experience the mind. Another analogy is that if I had a big fish tank and there was one small orange fish in it, all of our attention would go and say, this whole fish tank is, because, is there to look at this one little fish. If you took that one fish out, you might take interest in the plants. You might take interest in the water. So our minds are kind of like the water of a fish tank. And the content is like all these fish and our attention is drawn to them. But once you can calm down the content of your mind, you stand a chance to breathe in and out and mindfully be able to know different moods, different uh, mental qualities, different emotional qualities as direct experiences of themselves. So that's the uh, ninth invitation, breathing in, breathing out, knowing your mind. Then an interesting one is to gladden your mind. Now, we have three kinds of happiness on this, in these 16 steps. We have sukha, which is a calming happiness. We have piti, that's very exciting. Piti is sort of carbonated, caffeinated, Sukha is settling and soothing. Then there's this mid-happiness mid where you gladden the mind. The Pali word is pamoja. And so you know your mind has not got a lot of driven content. You're peaceful enough, present enough. It's a little bit like uh, putting hot air into a hot air balloon so that it rises, but it's not a rocket. Like PT can lift you very quickly, but you want to actually know your mind and then see if you can gladden your mind so that the space of your mind is full of some happy warmth. Some ways to do this is you're practicing, your mind's gone quiet, you're grateful for that. 
And they think, wow, I'm actually practicing something the Buddha taught 2,500 years ago in ancient India. Generations have practiced this. And I'm actually doing it. I'm actually in the zone enough to see this happening. I'm so happy I'm doing this. This is a good thing. Just that much is sort of, it's not the settling of sukha, it's not the excitement of piti, but it's like, ah, this is really good. That sets the mind up, this gladdening of the mind. And we all might say it's slightly different from our perspectives, so you have to find your own gladdening. That mind you can invite into samadhi. And so you invite the mind into samadhi, what does that look like? When breathing in, you know you're breathing in. When breathing out, you know you're breathing out. Why is that different than the first two steps? The first two steps, the mind doesn't necessarily want to be with the breath. So you're knowing you're in breath. You're knowing you're out breath. The mind wanders. You bring it back. You settle yourself, settle your body. Invite piti and sukha to balance out. Let go of mental content. Gladden yourself. And now while breathing in and out, it's, as Nikki said, it's this uh, incredible offering of yourself just to be breathing. You can let uh, time melt, not so important. Just that I'm breathing. What a gift. What a, an experience. Not like it's so exciting, but it actually is enough to be content-making that you're breathing. And to overlook breathing is really a, is really a, a mind in, in its own kind of poverty that it cannot be with such a simple miracle and be sustained by the experience of breathing. But when you feel rich because you're breathing and you can't believe your luck that you are breathing in and breathing out, that mind will go into this collectedness. And at that point, the mind wants to be there. The mind isn't tugged by old attachments. It's not dissatisfied. It's not agitated. And then the work of samadhi begins to evaporate because the mind itself likes knowing an in-breath and likes knowing that out breath and it can't believe it's good fortune that's being given such a vacation from torments of planning and then having to keep track of your plans and getting your history straight with all the details. And then there's your own life and then there's your phone with its complexities and then there's your work life and community life and things in your house that you have to clean, you haven't cleaned in a while and things that you have to still get that you didn't do. And then there's like the car you have to take care of and you're like, oh my God, all I have to do is breathe? Ah. Oh. I could go on vacation and it would be complicated, but this is not complicated. This is really simple, and this is a gift. Which brings us to the 12th suggestion while breathing in and breathing out. In samadhi, you might be having samadhi more often than you realize. It's just quiet, and it actually doesn't stand out with bells and whistles. It's just contentment. Because we measure these things off of our daily life, if you're content looking at a lizard, if you're content chewing on salad, 
if you're content breathing in, breathing out, you may not notice that it's actually remarkable that you're content with so little. So then the Buddha backs up the experience of samadhi with step 11 while breathing in. Know that your mind is not tormented. How easily all of us are tormented with impatience, time crunch, irritations, doubts. We're fending off and trying to have a stable personality. It's, there's a lot going on inside every one of us. But if you're breathing in and out, again, you don't want to pounce on this and get overly excited, but while you're breathing in, breathing out, saying, this is a mind free of torments. I probably couldn't sell this to anybody because everybody would be looking for something else. But in my own experience, it is worth it not to be have scratchy impatience or this anxious doubtfulness about what's going to happen with myself or the world or old regrets that keep stinging us over and over. Like, yeah, that's not happening now. It couldn't be simpler. I'm already breathing and my mind is not tormented. That says a lot more about what we're actually trying to cultivate here than what our egoic minds would paint a picture of in sort of a glory way of what would be worth this much time. You know, payoffs of fame or payoffs of moving gently, but everybody sees it, or other type of egoic payoffs. Like, ah, my ego isn't being paid off at all, but I'm not tormented right now but I'm not asleep. I'm peaceful and awake and just breathing is enough. We'll all get little glimpses of this and they're worth noticing that you didn't actually have to solve all the problems in your mind, that some of them can be solved, many of them, by the sort of baseline appreciation of being in a human animal that's alive and breathing. And moments where that really is enough. When we do this, we can reset our nervous system where that's the sort of the default where our mind goes when it doesn't have to be active. It takes a much more relaxed relationship to life. It doesn't look for another complicated thing to keep it busy. It knows how to cycle down. It knows how to be content with simpler things. That mind is more rested. And so then when our values are activated and we do want to be of service, we do want to be in the world, we're not uh, overextended and exhausted in making up the difference with willpower and just fighting for our values. We actually have known downtime so that as the mind wakes up and wants to engage more in the world, it's had some rest. So this is how we all and you all have an intuition that you actually can care better for the world if you know how to let it go for a moment, regroup, rest your nervous system so that there's a cycle where you can come up and engage with the world. We're not trying to do this to neutralize our relationship to the world. 
We're just learning to relax our nervous systems so they can regroup, so we're not so haggard. So that when we do, when we do have inspirations to be in the world, dance in the world, help and fix the world, that we're not uh, always at some deficit that we're trying to overcome in order to engage the world. We actually have taught ourselves how to consciously regroup, relax. So these are 12 steps. You might find them interesting to play with. If they're too complicated, put the whole thing aside and just breathe in and be glad you're breathing in. Just breathe out. Be glad you're breathing out. And let that process alone soothe your mind, soothe your body. Keeping it simple is really where most of us need to practice. But if you were curious about the way the Buddha instructed people in with these nuances, it could be interesting to also conceive of it. So play with it, put it down, be simple. These are invitations of how to breathe and be content when breathing. So let's sit uh, for a moment. We are so fortunate to be alive, so fortunate to be in an alive human body. And this breathing can be a refuge, just breathing in and just breathing out and finding refuge in such simplicity. Allow yourself to have faith to relax into something so simple and so ever-present as breathing. momentum of the day into the later evening. Let the, the day uh, still have a little exploration in it, walking a little bit, seeing the stars. And if you have the energy, please come again for one more sit. And if not, rest. And we'll begin again tomorrow. <laughs>